So how many of you here know that we were born into a war as believers? And it's not just a war against the flesh or against the demonic, though that's all true. It is a war for something. It is a war for abiding in Christ. Because he promised, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you remain in me, if you abide in me and I abide in you, then you will what? You'll bear much fruit, not just a little bit. And so he wants us to see people come to faith, to bear fruit, as Romans 1 talks about bearing fruit, seeing people come to faith. And the devil knows that too. And so he hates your prayer life. He hates it. And he's going to do everything to stop you from praying and bearing fruit because he hates losing his property. And so that is our spiritual war. How is your prayer life? Jesus goes on to say as well, and without me, you can do you can do nothing. So if you want a bunch of nothing, neglect your prayer life, and you will get a bunch of nothing. But that is our war. So we are just so happy to be with you guys today in this beautiful setting. My family, as I mentioned, my wife is here with me. We have nine children. And uh, we have a prayer card. I failed to bring it up here, but it's about this big. has all the kids. And we have the last one uh, was just born about a month ago. Her name's Zivia. So her name's on this prayer card, but her picture is not because we just didn't, yeah, didn't get it together. And uh, there we go. Uh, and just so you know, uh, we usually aren't here at Mount Hermon this week, but our baby was born with congenital heart disease. So basically a hole in her heart and a few other complications. So she's at Stanford being cared for by I think some of the best doctors in, in the world. And they're, they're loving her, caring for her, great nurses as well. And, but you can be praying for us in that. This is a totally new season. And uh, we are just, we love our baby girl, but she has some, some difficulties or some big challenges ahead. But uh, as a result, because we're at Stanford, we're close enough to come for just the morning and be with you guys. So we're excited to be here. And again, to, to talk about missions and prayer, one of my favorite words for prayer in the Hebrew Bible, there are many words for prayer in the Hebrew Bible, but one of them is paga. Paga means a meeting with an outcome. And when you meet with God, there is always an outcome. And so we've seen this outcome as we've gone uh, to North Africa about, uh, excuse me, uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, we left the shores of America. We flew to Italy and then we took a ferry to uh, straight south. You hit Tunisia and it was a 24-hour ferry. And I remember it because after the first five seconds, I realized I get seasick. So it was a long 24 hours for me. <laughs> And then we got to the shore, and we got there, the missionaries in the north told us, go to the south of the country. There are very few workers in the south, very few missionaries. So we got on a seven-hour train ride from the north to the south. We saw village on left and right, left and right, where the gospel has not been proclaimed for a thousand years. The last Christians were killed or kicked out a thousand years ago. And this is a country of 11 and a half million people, only 100 to 200 known believers. So such a dark place. I mean, there's more believers in this room, practically than in the whole country. So we get to this little city along the Mediterranean coast uh, down south, and uh, it's called Gabas. And the Lord placed us in an apartment building across the street from two sisters. We invited them over for tea one day, and they invited us over. And then my wife said, would you like to watch the Jesus film? 
And they said, sure. And so they watched about the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the oldest sister said, if anybody watches this, they're going to love Jesus. And she proceeded actually to have her friends, all of her friends see it. We went to her village and had her friends see it. And uh, uh, so one day uh, after that, we went and knocked on the door. And uh, they opened the door. And on their coffee table, they had a full Arabic Bible. We said, where did you get this? We love the Bible. And basically, it was impossible at that time to get a bunch of Bibles to come into Tunisia. If you bring a bunch of Bibles, they'll take them to the airport or the, the port, whatever. So uh, she said their friend went on vacation two years before to Jordan, came back and said, this is the way to get close to God. They said, we've been reading this Bible for two years. We haven't understood it for two years. And we've been praying for two years for someone to come and teach us. I looked at my wife. I said, every day you're gonna go disciples. Every day I would gently push Larissa out the door and she would go next door and I would just fall on my face and pray for these two sisters. And Larissa would read with them from the Bible and answer their questions and pray. And after two and a half weeks, the older sister came to Christ and then was baptized. And why is that? Because we're so good? No, it's because Jesus is so good. And his word always comes true. And he took our big family from Seattle where we were ministering to Muslims across the Atlantic down through the Mediterranean to the city we didn't know because two Arab sisters were praying because he's going to get them that gospel. The power of God is very evident. And from there, we said, Lord, do you want us to stay here in this very dark country or do you want us to go and train more workers for a ministry to Muslims? And I had just finished my doctorate or was finishing it right at that time in religious studies. I collected the 44 main arguments from Muslims against Christianity. How do you respond in 44 ways? And so I thought I should train more. So we decided to go to the best place to train new workers, which is Amman, Jordan. So we flew to the Middle East. And we got an apartment about one block from a famous language school uh, where, uh, Arab, uh, excuse me, where missionaries go to learn Arabic. And it's, it's a great school. So we trained about 80 people from 23 nations in Muslim ministry within the first few months. It was terrific. And then another wonderful thing happened. The Lord began to revive my prayer life. You know, there are many things that can hinder your prayers. For example, not caring for the poor. Uh, that was the message this morning. It's very interesting. Uh, It says in the Proverbs that if you turn your ear away from the cry of the poor, when you cry out, you will not be answered. So are you caring for the poor? That was one of the things uh, those years ago in Jordan. Am I caring for the poor enough? And we began to do that. Uh, Another thing it talks about is sin. Uh, It says in Psalm 66, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have heard my prayer. So are you cherishing sin? You have a little place in your heart where you just keep that secret sin no one else may know about, but you know about it and you just keep a little place to cherish it. That can end your prayers. Another thing is in 1 Peter 3, 7, it says that if you dishonor your spouse, your prayers can be hindered. So uh, that was an important thing. Many of the problems that I had were just coming straight from this mouth of mine. Was I showing honor to my wife? And I said, Lord, if there's something in me, you know, would you help me? And the Lord was just helping me deal with some of that sin and also just reviving my prayer life. And it was wonderful. A number of things happened. In our neighborhood, my wife was on Friday hanging out the laundry. And every Friday, they, over the loudspeaker, do the sermon from the mosque, okay? It's loud and it's often very angry. And this preacher was talking about his hatred for America and his hatred for Israel. And my wife said a simple prayer, Lord, would you let that man hear the gospel? 
Well, it wasn't too long after that. I was walking down the street with my son, Ezra, and he was about this high at the time. Uh, I can't remember his age, but eight years, seven years old or something. And as we got to the marketplace, I said, Ezra, when we get to the marketplace, do not speak in English because they will give us the foreigner price, the special price that's much higher. And so he said, okay, dad. So we got to the marketplace and he was quiet and I was buying my potatoes and whatnot. And then I saw a man meandering. He came over to me and he said, excuse me, do you speak English? And I said, yeah, I speak English. And he said, I heard someone speaking English out in front of my house and I came to find you. I said, great. And so he said, come to my house. And so we were walking with him and he said, what's your name? And I told him, and um, he says, what's your son's name? Your son's name? And, da- and my son Ezra said, dad, can I speak in English? I said, yeah, we've already paid. And so uh, we got to his house. He says, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. He says, great, I wanna to talk to you about how there's only one God in the Bible. I said, great, wonderful, let's talk about that sometime. So the next week, uh, excuse me, the next day, I go, I show up to his house, and I share a little bit about God with he and his son. And I'm beginning to share the gospel. And he says, would it be okay if I brought the leader of our mosque to this Bible study? I said, sure. So the next day, the imam, the leader of the mosque came, and I got to share the gospel with him. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? And he was receptive, and he was moved by the word of God through this wonderful prayer I think of my wife. And also, by the way, that, that I learned that that man was a part, that man that came to find me, he's a part of an unreached people group that I've been praying for for about five years. Uh, they're a Russian group that moved to Jordan. Uh, and so, I, wow, I got to share with one of the last reached people groups. I got to share with this. And another thing happened as well. A man we had known 13 years before in Jordan, we were living in Jordan before. We met him. He had such a sensitive, compassionate heart. We lost track of him for 13 years. We didn't have Facebook at the time, and a city of over a million people, how can you find this guy again? But by God's miracle, he came back into our lives. And the first night he was at our house, I read with him from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus is the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. He read it, he loved it. The next week, we gave him the Jesus film. We didn't know if he'd watch it or not. But the following week, he came back and said, guys, he handed us back the DVD. My wife and I watched this. It is correct, he said in Arabic. We said, wow. He's open. We said, well, you can keep the DVD. He said, it's okay, I've already burned it to my computer. So we said, fine. And, uh, and then the following week, he comes back and his hair looks horrible. He's smoking a cigarette in our house. He never did that, walking up the stairs, smoking the cigarette. And his face looks terrible, as terrible as his clothes look terrible. So we whisk him out to the front porch. We bring out the coffee and say, hey, what is wrong? And he starts talking about, I've got this problem and that problem. He lists his problem. He says, you guys have a purpose, right? We said, yes, we love to serve the Lord. He said, I have no purpose and I don't even want to live. So we grab the Bible from inside and we said, you know, Jesus is going to speak to you right now. He's the good shepherd. You were never meant to live without the good shepherd. And so he read for the first time, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, can I really have this rest? We said, absolutely. So we led him in a prayer and he prayed to ask uh, the Lord Jesus to be his good shepherd and to hear his voice. And after just a few uh, moments of prayer, we looked over at him and he was in shock. We said, are you okay? He says, I feel like I could walk in the street and not worry about buying bread or milk. We said, do you know, you just prayed to hear the voice of the Lord, and you're quoting from Isaiah chapter 55. He said, no. So we turned to Isaiah 55, and there it says, come and buy, right, milk without cost. And he keeps reading, and at the end it says, let the wicked forsake their ways. He says, I feel my relationship with other people is good, but I know my relationship with God is not right. And so he 
prayed and received the forgiveness of his sins through the blood of Jesus that night. And as he left, he said, I've got one more question. Is this real? Is what I'm feeling real? We said, absolutely. And he left with joy in his step. And the next week I saw him, he said he wanted his wife and two kids to know uh, Jesus is their good shepherd too. And uh, some years passed, we left Jordan and went to the Holy Land, and we didn't see him for some time after that, but he called one day and he said, guys, I want you to know Jesus is still my good shepherd. He still guides me every day. And why is that? Because we're so good? No. It's because Jesus' promise always comes true. And he says, you will bear fruit, and it's fruit that remains. So praise the Lord. How is your prayer life? And that is the most powerful thing you have. Always be encouraged that that is the most powerful thing you have. We've seen God do amazing things. Well, I wanted to talk this morning also about the spiritual war we're in and talk about it in terms of uh, kind of in, uh, you know, milita- in military terms. In fact, I think this, the scriptures are full of military language when it speaks about spiritual warfare. And so one of the first things in our American a military. Anybody in the military here? Uh, one of the first things is that the, the first principle of warfare is to have what? A clearly defined objective. So for example, some years ago in South Asia, our objective was communism will not go past this longitude and past this latitude. They, it was a clearly defined objective. So my question is, what is our clearly defined objective from the Lord Jesus? Preach the gospel, right? Preach the gospel, that's it. And where do we preach it? Everywhere. So he says it in a number of ways. Go therefore into all the world, baptizing, teaching them to obey everything I've uh, taught. So all nations, all the world. He says it another way. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends, to the ends. Another way, he says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached uh, uh, to all nations as a testimony to all ethne, to all ethnic groups, and then what will happen? And then the end will come. And so, Jesus' clearly defined objective is that we go to every square inch of the world, the highest mountaintops where there are people, every seashore, every jungle where there are people. His blood was shed for them. And I think the devil is doing a good job of fogging over that. And the objective doesn't become that everyone gets a chance to hear and be forgiven. It's about this or that or the color of the carpet or whatever. It's not about people who Jesus died for. And he hates that objective. Do you know that in this world, there are uh, mission agencies have come together. They have defined that there are 457 of the last of the last reach people groups. They're in so many different countries, and uh, the jungles of Brazil and parts of Afghanistan. For example, if you look at Sudan and South Sudan, there are over 50 level zero groups. That is zero scriptures in their language, zero people going to them, the last of the last. 50 level zero groups. So when you read the news about Sudan and South Sudan, when you read about the Darfur genocide some years ago, when you read about the recent conflict, the civil war, I believe it's not political, it is partly that, but it is primarily demonic to stop Christians from going to the last reach people groups. 
And uh, so when I talk about the, the topic militant Islam, you know, they're not the only ones, but the devil is using them to stop us from going to these places. And yet we will go. We're going to, you know, Christians are going to Chad to the 34 level zero groups there. And there's resistance and there's sacrifice. But if you're called to go, that's what you've got to do. So one of those people groups that we focus on as we go to the Holy Land every year are the deaf Palestinians. There are over 22,000 of them. They're considered one of the level zero groups. At least 10 years ago they were. Now we're reaching them the last three or four years. And uh, I wanted to share a story if I could with you of that. We were reaching out to the deaf in the Bethlehem area. That's where we live. Uh, three to four months a year we're in Bethlehem. And if you're there while we're there, come over and have a cup of coffee. Uh, but we said, man, we want to reach more deaf, and let's go to the north, uh, and there's some Palestinian territories in the north. So we went to Ramallah, and I parked at the place where I was first, my first mission trip was to Ramallah. I parked at the same building, I saw the Boab, the guy who's in charge of the security there. I said, do you remember me from 20 years ago? I said, yeah. I said, listen, I need to find a deaf center here. And he pointed me to this one place that had hard of hearing, and I, I presented them, do you wanna do a sewing project? They weren't interested. So they pointed me across the street to another place that has three deaf employees. They weren't interested. So as I walk out, I'm bouncing around here and there. I see this kind of homeless looking guy. He's sitting on a half wall and I just sit down next to him and I start talking to him and I get to share the gospel with him and he receives the Lord. He prays, receives the Lord. It was wonderful. And then I continued on up to the main area, downtown Ramallah is just, you know, high rises of maybe three, five uh, stories. And I saw a cafe on a second floor. I said, I'm going to go there. So I go upstairs, grab a seven up and there are two groups of people, one to my right, one to my left. I said, Lord, who do you want me to sit next to? He indicated to the left. So I sit down and there's this mother and daughter, the daughter's in her 20s. And I sit down and say, excuse me, do you know where there's a deaf center here in Ramallah? Now, right at that moment, I asked the question. I had noticed before when I had come up the stairs that they were installing windows on like the fourth floor. And those windows, one of them came crashing down onto part of the cafe and out into the street. And I thought, well, there's just the devil. And so I said again, do you know where there's a deaf center here in Ramallah? And the young lady said, do you know where the Red Crescent is? I said, yeah, I know where that is. It's like the Red Cross. It's a big building in Ramallah. She said, go to the fourth floor and speak to, and she told me the name of this lady. I said, what? She says, I used to work there. I'm like, you're kidding. Here I'm sitting with someone who worked there, and I got a chance to share the gospel with those two ladies. And they said, well, that's good, but when you go and you talk to the fourth floor, do not share any of this religious stuff. I said, okay, well, I probably will, but thank you. So I get to the fourth floor, and uh, the lady there says, well, the director's not here this week, but come next week, she'll be very excited about your project. So the next week I show up and I'm sitting across from the director. She's got her desk here. There's a, tr a translator from Arabic to Arabic sign language. And there are about six deaf ladies in the room. So the director looks at this. She says, okay, what is this? I said, well, and I wasn't sure if I should share right away. I said, the goal is because God loves everyone. Everyone has value and gold. She says, no, what does this mean? And I was like, ah, uh, and then Larissa was like, tell the story. And so I was like, let me tell you the story. So I shared, and this is, by the way, an Arabic word uh, hand-stitched by someone in the Bethlehem area. And, uh, and Ramallah now, we have Ramallah. Uh, and I said, well, the first, there's three letters for the Arabic word, kutiba. 
three letters, and they uh, speak about Jesus. And I said, so this is what it means. Jesus is the eternal word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. That's the first letter. He's the word of God. And the second letter means that Jesus died. He died for our sins. He's the perfect sacrifice to cover our sins. He said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. And finally, three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. That's the third letter. Is that It stands for he rose from the grave to give us eternal life. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, though they die, yet will they live. And those who live believing in me will never die. I said, so if you believe in Jesus, that he's the eternal word of God that died to cover your sins, that rose to give you eternal life, you can have eternal life and the forgiveness of your sins. And I said, that's what it means. And this lady was translating the whole time to these deaf ladies who never heard the gospel before, never had a chance to perceive the gospel. And I was ready to get kicked out. And the director leans forward and says, that's beautiful. Can we do the project? And I said, absolutely. So the next week, I show up. There are 16 deaf ladies ready to sew. I share the gospel again. And it was a wonderful open door for the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, that is our objective that all get a chance to hear. And it is hard. These last of the last reach people groups, they're, they're last for a reason. They're hard to find. They're hard to get to. Israel doesn't give visas to go and share with deaf Palestinians. We have to go as tourists. Okay. By the way, we had missionary friends in Egypt for 10 years on a tourist visa. People would say, 10 years as a tourist? What's that about? They said, yeah, there's a lot to see. So we go as tourists. It's a lot to see. So a second principle of war is maneuver. So you need to be able to maneuver and go different places in warfare in the military. Uh, because if they're over here, you need to move in this direction and so forth. Maneuver is huge. Do you remember World War II? Hitler had these wonderful uh, tanks, the Panzer units, and they were amazing at maneuvering and winning. Well, towards the end of the war, the biggest problem was fuel. They couldn't get fuel for their tanks. And at one point, they were just out there. They had ammunition, but they could not maneuver, and then they were decimated. So how are you? Are you flexible? Or do you go through life and just say, you know, I can't talk to that person because I've got to get to this appointment. But maybe you were on that route uh, because God wants you to speak some of there. I've got a friend of mine, and I won't embarrass him, but I asked him, how do you do this? He says when he goes from his desk to the water, right? He goes a different route every day. Why? Because he wants to have an opportunity to share with, with maybe someone and talk to someone different and get an opportunity to share the gospel. But are you able to maneuver? Can I share another true story with you? We were in Greece this last year and we happened to go to the city of Athens and we got connected to a wonderful ministry there that reaches out but unfortunately none of the leadership in, in that ministry speaks Arabic though they're reaching out to refugees and so we happened to go and we, we were so excited so we get in the ministry van head south to the refugee camp just south of Athens and we arrive and it's like cabins in the woods. It's a beautiful setting, probably the nicest refugee camp in all of Europe. It was owned by the government, then they handed it over for the refugees to use. So probably 200 families. And as we arrive in the van, there are about six refugees that surround the van. They want to get a ride into town, which is a little distance away because it's kind of boring out in the woods. So they get in and one of the people that gets in is clearly Arab. And my wife is sitting there and he's right here. And uh, she just has a simple greeting for 
for him. He says, hi, my name's Theresa, it's nice to meet you. The greeting was in Arabic. He turns to her and says, I've been waiting 10 months for someone to tell me about Jesus. And we said, wow. She says, William, this guy's interested in Jesus. So we get to hear more of this man's story. His name is Wahid. And he is not Muslim from a Muslim background. He's from this group called the Yazidis. They're a group that was heavily persecuted by ISIS um, some years back. And his mother and two-year-old brother were beheaded by ISIS. He was fleeing for his life to Europe. And another problem he had was that he had about four teeth that were abscessed. And uh, at the camp for 10 months, they would just give him pain pills, which doesn't help. So we took him immediately to the clinic, took him immediately to the dentist, translated, and within a week, he had all of his corrections uh, and uh, mostly pulled, but one, one corrected. And so uh, after that, we went to the ministry center. It's called Home Spot. They've got places for people to hang out, but of course, to share the gospel there. So we sit down with him, and I begin sharing about Jesus, the eternal word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And I begin to share about how he's the good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. And he said, listen, I've got to get back to the camp. So we said, fine, we'll go with you. And we get in the van. I continue sharing about Christ's sacrifice to bring us forgiveness, to bring us close to God again. And then after three days, he rose from the grave to give us eternal life. He's the resurrection and the life. And I said to Wahid, if you believe this about Jesus, then you have to welcome him into your heart. Do you want to welcome Jesus into your heart? He said, yes, I do. So we prayed. He welcomed the Lord Jesus, the forgiveness of his sins, the blood of Jesus, and the resurrection, eternal life. And as I looked over, after we were done praying, he was smiling. He had not been smiling all day because he was in pain, but here he received the greatest gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Maneuver. Are you able to go to where God wants you to go? And we see the power of God mostly in timing. He is the God of time that will put you in the right place at the right time if you are willing to share his message. Now, another aspect of spiritual warfare is security. And in fact, uh, my friend uh, Larissa's cousin retired from the military, 26 years in the army. And he, uh, every year I sit with him and I say, tell me more. And so he talked to me about defense one year and offense another year. And so one year he talked about offense, he says, when you're going to do uh, a strike, you're going to do some, something on the battlefield. He said, the first thing you do is what? He, put, he said, put security. So he showed me, you put security here and here. And why is that? Let me just turn this slightly. And why is that? Because the enemy, when they know you're attacking, they're going to try to come and outflank you. So first you put security. And, and so maybe even, you know, a rear guard here. And then the second thing is to start with supporting fire. So you have a group here, and they're going to lay down supporting fire on the target. And then finally, there's going to be the attack. There's a group here that's going to come in and go through the, the objective right there. All right, so security, supporting fire, and the attack. So then my question for you is, what is our security? What is our supporting fire? And what is the attack? Let me use a different color. So let's ask that first one. What is our security and our spiritual warfare to bring the gospel to people? Prayer, right? Put that here. One of my favorite verses, it says, do not worry about anything, right? But... Right, you know this, but with, by, by prayer and supplication, make your request made known to God with 
thanksgiving, and then what's going to happen? And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will what? It will guard you. It will guard your heart and mind. So I see prayer with thanksgiving or praise is your security. And that's why I think the devil hates it. He wants to weaken your prayer life. He wants to weaken your praise life. He'll want to make you think prayer is not important or get so busy you never have time for it or be on the app for two hours instead of praying for two hours. Anything to weaken you and your relationship with God. And he'll want to, again, because there's a promise that you'll be guarded in your thanksgiving, he'll want your praise to be weak as well and just fill you with complaint after complaint after complaint and whisper complaint a thousand and one complaints instead of a thousand and one thank yous to God for the things he's done. So that, I think, guards you. And there's another uh, a verse that I really love. It is in, uh, that was Philippians uh, 4, 6, and 7. It is in Isaiah 52, 12. Isaiah 52, 12. And I usually have this prepared. Can someone find that for me quickly? Isaiah 52, 12. Isaiah 12. Yes. All right, go, go ahead and stand up and say it. You will not leave in a hurry. Running for your lives. For the Lord will go ahead of you. For the Lord will go ahead of you. Yes, the God of Israel will protect you. The God of Israel will protect you. From behind. From behind. He will be your rear guard, it says. And I love about this verse. It says he will go before you and he will be your rear guard. And whenever we are ministering, it's not just us going on the attack. God has prepared people. He's gone before us and he is our rear guard as well. God and the grace of God, we, you know, we might also fall into the trap of legalism. I've got to do it 100% and I've got to give everything 100% or, and if I fail, that's it. God will never use me. No, God is your guard. Is there anything that can separate you from the love of God? Right, neither height nor depth. Nothing's present in the past. Nothing, the, the angels, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And that grace and love of God is your rear guard. And he goes before you. So I think of that. Uh, and the devil will, will always want you to think it's all on you. And if you fail in one bit, forget about it. God will never use you. No, it's not true. God will use you. Oh, so now the last question is, uh, what is our supporting fire And what is the attack? So what do you think? So the Holy Spirit, the word of God. And I think the Holy Spirit uses the word of God, you know, when we're there um, to give us the right words at the right time. So let's talk about the word of God. And I like to say it this way, speaking the truth in love. And I think that that is really what we have here. We have truth and love. And those are supporting fire and the actual attack. So on the one hand, suppose you uh, have a lot of love 
And I know that Christians have that and people sense it. We have a lot of love towards people and they're open, but we never open our mouth and say Jesus is Savior. We don't utter the words that Jesus is the reason we have peace and we have this life that is so full of joy. It's a supporting fire, but it's a very weak attack. Or on the opposite side, suppose you're sharing the truth, all right, on the proverbial soapbox, but you care nothing about the people you're sharing with, right? What kind of attack is that? It's very weak. They're not, they're not going to see anything genuine in you. And so that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, I could give everything to the poor and have my body burned, but if I have not love, I gain nothing. It means nothing. It's not the real attack. And so it's the truth in love. Can I share a couple stories about love? And I know you all have these kinds of stories too about how God has used your love and, and you've seen fruit. Um, this is the story I started with. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, by the way, uh, when you hear the news about militant Islam and refugees and terror at home, what does it make you do? It brings fear, right? Instead of you know, you see a Muslim woman or a Muslim man, instead of going and saying hi to them, it's like, oh my goodness, let me get out of here quickly. And that's not love. And that's what the devil wants. He wants you to be so afraid you will never even say hi. Uh, my name is William. What's your name? And where are you from? So love. Uh, when we were in the Bethlehem area some eight years ago, I was going up the stone steps into that marketplace in Bethlehem and I told you, I said, Lord, would you move me to meet the person you want me to meet? I had just read in my morning devotions, Peter wrote that the Holy Spirit moved these prophets to give us the prophecies. I said, Lord, would you move me? And stronger than I've ever felt, I felt God pulling me up those stairs. So I went forward, I felt him turn me to the right, and in this Muslim mini market, I grabbed something, went to the, the desk, and this man says to me, are you Muslim? He's the you know, cashier. I said, no, I follow Jesus, but Jesus' beard is longer than this. And he laughed, and the next words out of his mouth were, I love Jesus. I thought, whoa, this is not normal. Most Muslims say he's one of the prophets, but that's, that's it. I love Jesus. I said, man, I love him too. Let's talk about him sometime. So exchange numbers, I walk out, and I feel this is the man I'm supposed to meet. So very soon after that, we go to his house, meet his wife and kids, and his wife is bringing in chocolates and Coca-Cola and things. And after two hours, I pull out the Arabic New Testament, and I say, there's a very important question. What does it mean that Jesus is the son, that he's the son of God? Now, many times in the Quran, 19 times, it says that God does not have a son, and then it accuses Christians of believing something like Greek mythology, where God takes a human wife and has babies. I said, that's not what we believe. And so I took him to three short verses that showed what the term son really means. The first verse is when Jesus was baptized, the spirit descends as a dove, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. And he's beloved of the father. That's why Paul could say of Timothy, he's my son. He's not really his son, but he loves him like a son. And so he says, okay, all right. So Jesus is loved by the father, beloved. And the second meaning is that he's the servant of the father's will. It's very well understood in the Middle East that the oldest son of the family served the, serves the father's will in that family. And there's even a special name for the oldest son. And so, uh, so we said, you know, 
uh, Jesus was a servant of the Father's will, not 99%, but 100% and gave his life as a ransom for many. So he's the beloved, he's the servant, and finally he's the eternal word of God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Through him all things came into being and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as this unique son full of grace and truth. So I said, never in history has the eternal word of God taken on flesh except here in Jesus. He's the unique son, beloved, the servant, the word of God. That's what it means, not that God took a wife. So Cal, this Muslim guy, turns to his wife who's coming in and out and stops her and says, wife, this is what it means that Jesus is the son of God and starts preaching the three points. We're like, wow. The wife was shocked because she grew up in Saudi Arabia and you do not say that God has a son unless you want to die. Okay, you don't say it. But he's like, no, that's what it means. We hand him the Bible and the Jesus film that night. He holds it to his chest and said, this is the best gift you could have ever given me. And he told us that night that he was with Hamas. He was put in Israeli prison for four and a half years. He said while he was in prison, one of his friends who was also with Hamas got out of prison and became a Christian. He said, I've heard everything he says about Jesus on YouTube. It's my time to learn. We said, wonderful, come over anytime. And by the way, his friend who got out and became a Christian, <clears throat> is the son of the founder of Hamas. And he wrote a book called Son of Hamas. You should read it. It's a great book sometime. You should read it. So he said, my friend became a Christian. It's my time to learn. We said, come over anytime you want. So he'd come to our house sometimes three nights a week, come around nine or 10 at night, stay till about one or two in the morning, which is normal in the Middle East. We bring out the cup of coffee and the word of God. The first study, he said, guys, this is a closed meeting. Do not share with anyone. I'm studying the word of God with you. I'm very well known in this area. But while you're here, I will watch your back and I have many people behind me, but do this one thing, teach me about Jesus. We said, absolutely, what do you want to learn? So we had a question, we turned to the word of God, he read it, he understood it, it was beautiful to see the spirit of God moving. And we said, great, it's a closed meeting, we'll see you next time. So the next week he comes back and says, guys, I've got some news for you. We said, great, what's your news? He said, well, I was at the leadership meeting for Hamas this week. I'm part of the leadership in Bethlehem and I told them about you and about how Jesus is the son of God. We said, what did you do? Don't share with Muslim terrorists. We're here, please. He said, yes, yeah, some were really disgusted and left. Others were interested. He said, but the spiritual leader for Hamas was there and opposed him. He said, what are you doing speaking about Jesus here? What are you doing? And our friend Cal says, well, Jesus is so distinguished. And the spiritual leader said, no, he's not. Adam is better than Jesus. And uh, so our friend Cal was really offended. He says, what do you mean Adam's better than Jesus? And the spiritual leader said, well, God formed Adam with his two hands, but Jesus, he's just, just a breath of air, totally offensive. Our friend Cal said, if this is the way Islam disrespects Jesus, count me as a follower of Jesus. He said, by the way, I have a film about Jesus. If any of you wants to see it, it's great. And then he walks out and says, what did I just do? And I told him, I said, never be ashamed that you were bold because the spirit of God moves in boldness. So he'd come to our house these many times a week, study and go and talk about Jesus at work, at his gym, on Facebook. And it was so exciting to see. But one night he came and he was so sad. He said, guys, I'm so new at this. I don't know how to respond when Muslims say things against Christianity. He said, in fact, the spiritual leader for Hamas also said Jesus did not die. And uh, so how do I respond to that? Well, I had just finished my doctorate in religious studies, and I collected those 44 arguments against Christianity. How do you respond in 44 ways? I've got 10 whole points when they say he didn't die. I'm ready to teach. Ready to respond. And I sit forward, and the Spirit of God says, quiet, be quiet. And I was really shocked. Sit back and say, God. 
I did all this study. And then Larissa sits forward and says something she's never said before. She says, Cal, we know it was Jesus who was on the cross because Mary, the mother of Jesus, could have seen the feet of Jesus on the cross. Larissa said, I know the toes of every child of mine, every foot of every child of mine. Mary could have seen his feet on the cross. Of course we knew it was Jesus. Cal got very quiet. He said, where is that written? And so uh, we turned the Gospel of John. There's the disciple with Mary nearby the cross. There's a conversation going on. She's close enough to see his feet. And so he writes down the page number and says, guys, here in Palestine, when a Palestinian has been martyred, say they've been shot by an Israeli, they wrap the body in a white sheet and then they bring the mother to identify the body and they pull back the sheet over the feet. The mother identifies the body by the feet. We had no idea. He said, I wish you would have told me that. I would have said it in the meeting. But here's this little verse that we don't think a whole lot about, but it means something so deep in his culture. When he shares the gospel, he says, you know, Mary could have seen the feet of Jesus, and it means something to them. And that was the verse the Spirit of God wanted to teach. So our friend Cal came to faith. The next week, he said, I've left the leadership of Hamas because I didn't want to plan destruction for anyone because I'm a follower of Jesus. And he told us many things after coming to faith. He told us that he would come to our house with such anxiety. He said he never had peace with doing all the bombings and all the shootings. He was one of the top guys, and he never had peace doing any of it. But he was wooed into it like a gang, and you can't fully ever get out. So, uh, but when we'd come, and uh, he'd come to our house, we'd bring out the coffee and the Word of God, he said he felt such peace. And which is just the Holy Spirit. And I often say it's more important to know how to make a good cup of coffee than to know systematic theology. Now, knowing systematics is extremely important. You have to know the Word of God backwards and forwards to teach rightly the true character of God. But how much more is love that He will see your love? He also said, I felt there was a chair in your heart where I could come and sit. He knew we loved Him. So, love is this attack. And the Lord goes before us. One other thing he mentioned to us after coming to faith, and it was about a year after coming to faith, was that after four and a half years in Israeli prison, he was released. <clears throat> and uh, he was on his couch in his living room about four in the morning, and he looked up and saw someone in brilliant white light. And there was a fence in front of him, and then the vision was gone. He said he knew it was Jesus. He said from that moment, he was looking for someone to teach him about Jesus. He would sit in his little shop and look out and occasionally see foreigners going by. He saw something sweet inside of them. He knew they were Christians, but he didn't speak any English, and they didn't speak any Arabic. And so he waited and waited and waited, and four years later, I walked into his shop. And... Uh, and when he tells his testimony, he says, when he learned that I was a Christian, he says, then I grabbed William. He said, I've, you know, I've, never, I've never seen someone so hungry to know who the Lord Jesus Christ was. This brother, Cal, has gone to jail for his faith. Uh, about a year after coming to faith, he was sharing his testimony, wrong time, wrong place, someone informed, and then he went to Palestinian jail two times for his faith and stood firm. So if you're ever in the West Bank, give us a call, come over and have coffee and we'll introduce you to Cal. He's a dear brother in the Lord. Um, we have many good stories about his love for the Lord Jesus. So love, I wanna also tell you this, love and Christian unity go together. And in the Middle East and in North Africa, sadly, one of the great strongholds the devil has is on disunity. In fact, the, the name for the devil, Diabolos, means a ball going through to divide. So he divides. 
and it's so sad and we know that it's just uh, trying to, uh, you know, if we're powerful, if we're, if we're unified, then we're powerful, right? But the, the Lord uh, knows this and he said in John 17, he says, I in them and you and me, speaking to the Father, that they may be one even as we are one so that the world will know the Father has sent the Son. The gospel goes forward in power when we are one. And so uh, a sad story I wanna share with you it's sad, the beginning was sad. Oh, yes, Larissa uh, is right here and she said that she's uh, handing out on those nice uh, clipboards. If you want to pray for us, you can put your email and, or your physical address and we'll uh, send you infrequent prayer updates. So that's really important. Uh, Larissa, do you have those clipboards? Yeah, but I'm gonna start some of the Okay, okay, yeah. So where was I? Um, yeah, oh yeah, this year, this year. So we were, we were ministering there this past year and loving our time. And one of the things that we love is there are many ministries. And one of the ones we love the most is in the Bethlehem area. They help with people who need wheelchairs. They have wheelchairs. A wonderful wheelchair ministry. They also have, um, they bring disabled kids to do handcrafts. They do other things. Um, they have a whole floor dedicated to children with autism and other special needs. So we love them. And uh, they also uh, do things like uh, make blankets. Uh, disabled make blankets. We go to buy the blankets. We buy the ornaments and so forth. We love the place. And uh, some of our friends at a, in a village, they're kind of leaders there. They needed wheelchairs. So we said, hey, come meet us at the ministry center. We'll introduce you and let's have lunch there. And they also have a place you can have lunch. So we show up and we say, hey, is the director here? We'd love to introduce him to our friends and uh, take a tour. And so uh, the secretary says, go and see the director immediately. And in front of our friends, we're like, okay. So we go and see him and we're in the office and our friends stay behind, thank God. And he's huffing and puffing. And he says, you are bringing groups of people here and you're telling them this is your ministry and you're telling, uh, you're telling them that and you're stealing tens of thousands of dollars from us. And we sat back in shock. We said, brother, the, the group we have today is two poor Palestinians that need wheelchairs. And we said we brought like three or four friends last year to buy ornaments from you. We said, don't buy them in Bethlehem, buy them from you, because we love you guys. And uh, some other things from you. And we were just so, so hurt. And I knew this was just the devil. And he said, well, I think you understand my position. Of course we did. I mean, I go to church with this brother and I don't know who whispered this lie and this slander, but I was gonna have none of it. And as we left, I said, we're still bringing groups here to buy ornaments from you guys. And we left and as I talked with Larissa, she did not ever wanna go back there again. And I understand it, it's, we were hurt, but I was not gonna let it happen. So five days later, I go back to him and I had a genuine question. We're reaching out to people with diabetes. That's a big problem in the West Bank and the Palestinian territories and he's got 30 years of experience. And I said, so I was thinking about approaching it this way or that way, what do you think? And he gave me some great advice. He said, don't do it that way and do it this way. And at the end of our conversation, I was so grateful, truly grateful. And I, and I stood to shake his hand and he said, I'm sorry about last week. And I said, no worries. He said, William, do you need a job? I said, no, we're here as missionaries. We're doing our mission work. We don't need an extra job. He said, well, I need someone to do a job with special needs boys and to help them with a gardening project. We have funding for three years. So if you know of someone, let me know. I said, I will. And so, you know, I call Cal up. I said, Cal, do you want, do you know gardening? He's like, yeah, I know some gardening. So he applies for the job, gets the job. 
And uh, the greatest thing about it is that he's working with these special needs boys, some Down syndrome, others have other kinds of issues. And uh, when he first showed up, they had filthy language. Probably they were cussed at in the home, in the home and they just repeating the words. And he said, we're going to have none of that. So for one full hour before they do any gardening, he sits with them at a table and he says, we're going to practice saying, I love you. So you say, I love you to your neighbor. And they go around and practice saying, I love you. And then they practice saying, I love you, mom. I love you, dad. And he teaches them character and he prays for them in the name of Jesus. And not only that, he's reaching their families who are so touched by this man's love. So look at what God did through staying unified even more families get to hear the gospel and be touched by the love of God. Unity. How are you doing with unity? One last story, and it's about sharing truth. There we are. Truth is the attack. We've got to open our mouths and speak about the Lord Jesus Christ as we love, speaking the truth in love. Well, this last year, before we got to the Middle East, we stopped in Europe Uh, usually every year, and uh, we stopped off and we saw our friends up in the Netherlands and Leovarden, near Leovarden, up north. And uh, so uh, childhood friends with Larissa, he married a Dutch lady and they have three beautiful kids and so we visited them for a few days. And we're there and their neighbor from across the little bridge, and there's all these canals there, across the little bridge, their neighbor was curious. What are these people doing here? So she comes up and I'm throwing the kids at the park down the zip line and they're having a blast. She comes up and says, hey, so who are you? And I said, well, I'm William, we're friends. And she says, okay, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor and we share you know, the gospel with people in the Arabic world. She said, okay, what's that like? So I shared a little bit. She says, okay, very interesting. So she leaves and she invites us over for dinner, which is not necessarily culturally the you know, thing to do, but she does it and it's so exciting. So we walk over the bridge and we have dinner and she had many questions about God. And uh, the local pastor, by the way, of their little village is a woman who doesn't believe God exists. So she can't get her questions answered from this lady. So it was wonderful to share and answer some of those questions adequately. So she turns to our friends and says, now how does someone get William and Larissa to stay with him? We said, listen, there's no application. You can just, you know, open your door and woke up. And uh, so they invite us over. So we go there for about three or four days. And the first morning we're there, we're having family devotions. And we said, you're welcome to join us. We're just going through the New Testament little by little, verse kind of by verse, and maybe six, seven verses at a time. So they join us. And we're, we're happening to go through the, the passage in Revelation about the Laodicean church is a church that's lukewarm and Jesus wants to spit them out because they're all about materialism and they say, we don't really need you, Jesus. And they kick him out and there he is knocking at the door and he says, you're not all that, but you are poor and you're wretched and you're naked and they have such great needs for him to have him in their lives. And uh, so we finish the passage, have some questions and then she says, did you pick this passage because I was here? We said, no, this is just the next part we're going through. She said, this is me. She said, I am all about material goods, material life. And she said, I don't pray. And she was so touched that the Lord spoke directly to her. She left weeping and went upstairs and just had a time with God. It was wonderful. So sharing the truth in love is the attack. So how are you doing with all this? How was your prayer life? How was your objective are you, are you focused on what the Lord has you, has called you to do in your neighborhood or your, your home or your workplace or the world or the ends of the world? Um, how was your prayer life? How was your understanding of God's grace 
that it surpasses anything and there's nothing can separate. How is your praise life doing? How is your walk with the Lord loving people? And how are you opening? Are you able to share the gospel within 30 seconds? Uh, That's what I love about this. We can share the gospel within a minute. Um, Are you able to share the gospel within five minutes? Can you share testimony over a half an hour? And be ready to do that. We have a friend in Jordan. He was there, and uh, he would carry with him, wherever he went, Bibles, like 10 Bibles in his bag. And, And he said, it's amazing. I'm on the bus, and someone comes to me and says, hey, do you have a Bible? And he's like, oh, let me check. Let me see if I got something here. Oh, yes, I do. And he hands it out. Uh, And why do you think that happens? Because he's got a Bible. He's got something to give. And I think if you have love ready to give, if you've, you know, made a place in your heart open to love people, uh, then he's going to send people who need to be loved. And if you're ready to open your mouth, prepared to share some truth, the Lord will use you. Uh, Let me pray for you, and then we'll do the raffle. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your goodness, that your promises always come true, and we see your power every day. Uh, Lord God, I pray that you would raise up workers to go to the last 457 last reach people groups, the last of the last, the ones who have no scripture, no one going to them. Confirm in their hearts to go today. Confirm in their hearts today. And uh, Lord, strengthen them and open the hearts of the people, the last of the last, in the jungles of Brazil and the mountains of Afghanistan and the deserts of Sudan and South Sudan and Chad. Prepare their hearts to receive this word which you died for, your love for these people. And use us here in the Bay Area or wherever we're from and use us across the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, for the raffle. Someone give me a number between one and five. All right. And a number between one and 20. What? I heard 17. All right. So let me do this. Um, 17. So let's see here. One, two, three, four, five, five. I think it's 10, 1, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and then four back. Ooh, right there. All right. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> now, I'm here to answer any questions that you might have. Feel free. You can ask anything. Yes, I like to say if you have any questions, you will answer. Yeah. Yes. Of the 44 questions that are going to be asked, yeah. what would you say are the top three? Okay. arguments against Christianity. First, they say that you believe in three gods, three gods. And that would be the Father, Jesus, and Mary. That's what they would say about you. So uh, that's, that's definitely one of them. They would also say Jesus did not die and that he's not the son of God. So right away, we can either, you know, uh, uh, fall into that pit or we can just answer that's not at all what we believe and this is what we actually believe. Yeah. Any other? Yes. Some of the Muslim women, they're not allowed to talk to men. Is that true so that um, you can't witness? Yeah, in a lot of homes that we visit, William immediately goes into one living room with the men and I go into another living room with the women and crying babies (laughs) and toddlers. And um, so he gets to share with the men and I get to share with the women. But yeah, it's in the United States, it's good to be sensitive about that. Um, 
it's good if you're a woman and you have a heart for Muslims and you're praying for Muslims and there's a Muslim guy who's running the gas station, you know, and you get a little chance to say like, oh, God bless you, or my family prays for Muslims, you know, we pray for you. Like to say a little word of encouragement, you want to be salt and light, but you want to be careful. We had this one lady come up to us and say, um, yeah, I was praying God would give me a chance. And so I asked the Muslim guy at my gas station, you know, would you like me to pray for you? And a Muslim, we've never, in 30 years since 1989, I've been in Egypt and North Africa and all over, I've never once heard a Muslim say, when you said, can I pray for you, say no. So they will almost always say yes, if you ask the question. So he said yes. And she said, when I heard that, I just took his two hands and I just went, oh. <laughs> and she prayed for him with all her heart, but that poor guy yeah. was like, Woo, do I get to know Christians fast? Yeah. You know, that's what he's like. Yeah, this is the normal <laughs> position for prayer. Yeah, so, they'll, they'll put their more. hands like this, but it doesn't mean you hold their hands. They're, that's their position for prayer, yeah. Um, so so I, I wanted to make sure I mentioned this before I forget. Um, if you would like one of those wallets or a bookmark that has the gospel in Arabic, you're most welcome, and we just ask for a, a $5 donation. It covers the cost and covers the cost for me to give one away. Um, and then if you're interested and you know some Muslims and you want to get them the gospel, uh, there's a website that has the gospel presentation I give in English, Arabic, not French, um, Spanish and Russian. And I want to just write that here. And if you're interested and you want to share the gospel that way. He also has two books. One is called Desolate Vineyards. It's desolate because there's hardly any workers among the Muslims. And that's available on Amazon. And another one is called Prayer Jiu-Jitsu and Prayer Platoon. And um, those are really great books like to encourage you in your prayer. prayer life. Right. Do you want to put the Amazon thing on? Oh, there okay, too? sure. But any other questions? Okay. Um, when you talk about in the areas where it's very isolated and they've not heard the gospel and you share, like you were talking about the homeless person or the person, how do you mentor them after that? I mean, they come to know Christ, but how do you get them a Bible? How do they get teaching? So for that man that he witnessed to, we go back to Ramallah every week on the same day so we can keep going back to the same areas. And we go back to the Palestinian territories every year for three or four months. So we go back for three or four months every year and visit those homes and share again. And we'll walk in those villages and sit down and they'll bring the tea and they'll say, William, tell us again that story of Jesus. It's so beautiful. When I was a little girl, there's a hymn where they, they sing, tell it again, tell it again, salvation story, repeat. And to have them actually say, tell us again, so we try, we, we have like a, um, you know, just like the birds migrate faithfully each year, we migrate to the same areas each year, also passing through Europe and sharing with the Arabic refugees throughout Europe. So we kind of have a pilgrimage. So God is able to lead us back again and again and again to continue. But he also can bring new people in their lives to come alongside him for a while. God is really awesome in taking care of his kids. <laughs> Another one? So I'm guessing I might know part of the answer, but one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is as you're going and sharing, you know, you, you're sensing like God say, okay, over here, mm -hmm. okay, you know, like don't say this, and, you know, so it's, it's a strong sense that you get. How did you see that develop in your life of the Lord like leading you that way? Uh, there's a pastor that says one of his goals is to respond to the initial prompting of the Lord. And you know and I know we can always resist that, that initial 
nudge. So when we don't, oh my goodness. Uh, this one time, uh, we were in the middle of a, t- a city in France, non-France, and we we're doing some chore, uh, just getting the kids registered for school in France. And we're going down, trying to find the office, in the middle of this huge city, lots of people. And I see this man, this North African man, and the Lord says, I mean, just clearly indicates, you need to go talk to him. And so, of course, what I do, I say, Larissa, go and talk to that man's wife. And uh, she says, why? I said, don't ask, we just go. So she goes and talks to the man's wife, then I show up and begin to share with him. Uh, That man loved everything we shared about Jesus, and some nights later at his house, he said, by the way, I wanted you to know I had a vision about Jesus in Algeria. So God, you know, he just will give you a nudge. He's never going to force you. And so I think it's just being sensitive to nudge. And uh, someone was talking about the fact that, you know, as believers, we can be skeptical. Skeptical, well, that's not really God. That's just our feelings or things like that. But wouldn't you rather lean towards just trying to follow the nudge than always being skeptical? And so we try to do that. And, you know, we're, we're able to do that. And tell how the dreams and visions are grace. Ah, Well, you've heard many people say Muslims are getting dreams and visions of Jesus. I want to absolutely affirm firsthand, yes, it's happening with many, many people. And we get to reach some of them. I think there are many hundreds more who've had the vision and no one's gotten to them. And that's, that's what I truly believe. Uh, and, and so why is it? You say, hey, I want a dream. I want a vision, right? And uh, well, here's the special thing about them. For many of them in Indonesia, in North Africa, Many of them are, in some cases, not literate. Uh, Many of them don't even have access to a Bible, not one verse of the Bible. And uh, so when they are, when they come to faith, they're persecuted sometimes within the same day, within the same week, or within the same year as our friend was going to jail. They don't have seminary. They don't have Bible college. They don't have great pastors teaching them. And so when they're persecuted, all they have sometimes is I know Jesus came to me, and they're willing to die for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul writes, when he was going through some real struggles, the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. And so this is a little bit of grace given to them before they die as martyrs. And uh, we often say discipleship in the Middle East, there's maybe 101 good, good definitions, but it is preparation for martyrdom. Because they are, when they come to their house, your house to study the Bible, they already know. They've calculated, okay, this is going to cost me everything. The ones who've seen Jesus in a vision or dream, they describe him just like Revelation 1, and they've never seen Revelation 1. It's really awesome. And they tell us, like, discipleship is preparing them for martyrdom, but they prepare us all the time. They're, you know, when they've seen Jesus, they have such a love, such a passion. We enter their home, and they say, isn't Jesus distinguished? He came to serve and not be served and to give his life for many. You know, like, this is the way they talk. And, like, I'm around Christians a lot in the United States, and we don't, like, as soon as we walk in the door, like, he is so awesome. You know, like, he is awesome. But it's just, they have such a passion because they had no peace. And I can't imagine what it was like for them to live in darkness so long. But he has, our friend said, it's like I was groping in a dark room all my life. And when I found Jesus, it was like the light switch went on. You know, he doesn't know the Bible says that Jesus is the light of the world, but they describe exactly that Jesus is the light. So this guy, he says to William and I, he's like, when it comes your turn to die, William and Larry say, you die with your head up. You know, they're like, 
okay. <laughs> Another question? So like in instances, like I think you just talked about, I don't, I'm trying to think of how to word it, but how do you find the right moment to talk about Jesus? Like that is always a struggle and like I want to tell someone, but when is that appropriate and is it always appropriate or? I'm trying to do it quicker and quicker. I've spent the last month and two days at Stanford University Hospital um, with so many nurses and doctors and other families who are in crisis times. And we have our prayer card that you see with the nine kids. The baby's name is there. We just reprinted this this week, but we weren't able to put a picture in of her. So this is hanging in her crib. So families and nurses, they see it, and they come over and they, come over and they say, I want to ask you more about what you do. You know? <laughs> or they say, is it okay to ask? Is that prying? And I'm like, oh, yes, we love it when you ask. No problem. You know? And I'm trying to say, to say it quicker and quicker. You know, like, what do you do? And we, I try to say that my husband has this project with deaf Palestinian women and children in the West Bank. And they, they sow this acrostic for the gospel that Jesus is the word of God who died and rose again. And when they say, when people come up to us and say like, oh, you're such a wonderful family, you're an amazing family. I say, no, we're not immediately. We're not wonderful, we're not amazing. God is amazing because he's willing to work with us as we fumble along. We have a great savior. That's what I try yeah. to mention him as soon as I can. Because it's so easy, and I almost got more and more in the habit, like when you're traveling in the airports and other people are on vacation, you're traveling, like just to kind of make it look like you're doing good works, you know, and just have this nice little easy conversation. And, it, and then I just feel so empty and yucky because I wouldn't be standing there if Jesus hadn't done tons of stuff to make that happen. So I really want to give him the honor and mention him as soon as I can. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel that the devil is trying to distract you with your daughter in the hospital right now? Would you like me to answer? Do you want to answer? Sure. We live in a fallen world, and yeah. hardships come to all of us. But God uses those as awesome opportunities to shine for him in places that we never would have been. One of our daughter's nurses is from a town in Romania where William spoke in two churches in that town in Romania. <laughs> It's such a small world. I showed her pictures of the churches in my phone. So we're seeing God use this just in un, um, unexpected ways. Well, uh, you know, I, I believe that uh, God is writing a story. And it's, uh, it's going to be an amazing story that we get to share with people. Uh, one of the things, we've never stepped into the universe of having a, a sick child. Never. We had you know, asthma or something, but very manageable. Uh, this, this is a whole new universe, and I think we're getting to understand what many other families around the world are going through. And if anything, it's going to give us a, love, a deeper love for those families that might have a Down syndrome kid, that might have someone who has a heart surgery need or some other genetic issue. So if anything, it's bringing us to have more love for this world and... Uh, and uh, again, God's writing out an awesome story. Uh, so we're, we're in the right place yeah, for that. There's so much overlap to the story. We have actually helped Syrian and Iraqi and Kurdish kids come to Israel and get heart surgeries in Israel. William's driven them to the hospital. I've stood with them in the waiting room, been the first to enter the ICU after the surgeries are done and their fingernails went from blue to pink. 
you know, hugging the moms as they weep. So we've helped them get these heart surgeries by God's grace. And so we're, we were familiar with like getting an echocardiogram and, you know, many things about the heart surgery. And some of the little um, Kurdish kids would run up and they, they want to check your chest and see if you have one of these scars too <laughs> with a little drainage hole, you know, to check one of our kids is going to have that badge of honor. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Another question? You said something about uh, kids with diabetes in the West yeah. Bank. Mm -hmm. Can you expound a little more on that? Okay. Uh, in the West Bank, almost every family has someone who's got diabetes. Uh, they got someone, an uncle or a dad. Or, and, and so it's rampant. Uh, childhood diabetes as well. And it's not just type 1, which you can't actually do anything about in terms of like solving your issues. It's, it's more that they intake great amount, a great amount of, of different types of food that are contributing. So... Um, uh, so it's just, it's, we're hoping, and we've already started talking about what causes type 2 diabetes. And just with a few families here and there, and it's amazing to see people waking up to, okay, let's change some things. For example, they might put uh, in every cup of tea, how many? Three teaspoons, three of, teaspoons sugar, of sugar. Six or seven cups a day. Six or seven a day. Now, that's not good for you. <laughs> so... Yeah. That Over issue. Fifty percent of Palestinians have type two diabetes, uh, and in yeah. the West Bank, they don't have the health care they need. And we yeah. have visited homes where their limbs are black and rotting, and yeah. they're just waiting to die. It is yeah. so so bad. What's so yeah. intriguing? One village we went to, the he was like a dad. Yeah, he was a dad um, who was who was suffering from type two diabetes, and uh, I won't go into the gore, but it was pretty gory. His dad, who was in his eighties, was great. He didn't have the kind of diet that, we've, that they've begun to consume. The younger generation is dying yeah. before their parents because of yeah. the new diet, all yeah. the convenience foods. And so, you know, it's yeah. one way we can care for them and just talk about it and, and see some pretty amazing changes right away with mm -hmm. people changing diet. So that's pretty cool. Any other questions? Yes. I was just wondering about your children. Do they travel you. with you? Yes. And I, I, I would love to say, people ask me, how can I pray for you? I say, please take a prayer card and choose one of those kids, including Zivia, who's on the new one, um, her name is. The baby. And uh, choose one of them and please pray for them. Because they, they see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, I, I tell you, they see the goodness of God, and the miracles of God. They also see a lot of spiritual warfare. And we want them to just keep walking and the Lord to not forget what they've seen in the light. So, uh, wow, if you would pray for our kids, that would mean the world to us. When we go through some of the hard stuff, and I didn't talk about hardly any of it, uh, um, the open sewage in the streets, or some of the issues with working with terrorists, which we work with more than just one, we work with a number of them, uh, there are some pretty hard moments. And your prayers actually make a huge difference. Mm. So thanks for loving us and praying for one of those. Mm. Yeah. At the hospital, there's some activity rooms that patients and siblings can go to. And our kids have been making friends. And the patients have said, can your kids come to our room and spend time with us? One's a 15-year-old girl. She said, I don't get any visitors. Can your daughter please come? So our kids have been playing card games and different games with her. And our 13-year-old daughter shared with another family's daughter. She's like, let me practice one more time before I share with her. And she shared, she practiced, and she shared the gospel. And she's like, Mom, I, I did it, I did it. You know, yeah. she's so excited. So we're, this girl who doesn't get any visitors, she's been there for four months. 
living there, she's a really difficult um, situation. So we're going to try to like start reading a children's Bible with her and reading, you know, and telling her about like focus on the family radio dramas, you know, Christian stories like Narnia and stuff like that, because she has so much time, mm -hmm. you know, and her mom is not sitting in the room with her most of the time. Yeah, yeah she's just totally alone. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to thank you two and um, really, like, I know we are all so grateful for missionaries like you guys. Um, and it's such an honor uh, to support people like you. And I'm wondering um, what the best way um, to support missionaries is um, and to even find out who is in need of support financially and whatnot. Um, do you I'm sure that God will bring in your path, like the ones that he wants your family to support, like everyone comes across different ones. But if you're interested in supporting our family, we're supported by people's just almost all just by individuals. There's two or three churches that give $100 a month, and the rest is all individuals. And we have our information, hlgiving.com is on there, if, if you're interested. Yeah, we'd, we really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Anyone else? Question? Yeah. Um, I'm a teacher, and we, we, all, we sometimes we get these refugees coming in. I think of Turlock, Mendota, California. Mm. Um, I, I don't interact with too many of them. I've only had like one or two Muslim students. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I, I just try to be a good Christian, you know, and just be nice to them. Uh, any thoughts on uh, maybe what their mindset is when they come over here from Syria or Yemen? Uh, so, hey, uh, we'll be able to talk more. I know that people have to leave, so I'll answer this. It will be our last question, and then we'll be over there. Um, yeah, so interacting with them, I will tell you many of them are lonely. In their culture, if you, if you walk down the street and there are seven houses, you will get seven invitations to tea. And here in the States, sometimes our culture is not that way. And it's they may never even enter your home, right, or anyone's home. So that's always a kind of a sad thing for them. They're very sad to be, and in one sense, they're happy to escape and, uh, for their lives. And another, our culture is not as warm as theirs. So anytime you can just smile at them and just say hi, uh, this is even just something that small is actually huge. It's light years from, from uh, you know, what they're experiencing. And you can say something like, I pray for people. I pray for Arabic speakers. You know, do you speak Arabic, you know, where you're from? You know, and if he says, well, actually, I speak Farsi. I'm from Iran. Like, you could right away say, do you think we could get together sometime? It's weird for Americans, maybe, to say that, the second sentence. But for them, it's their love language. It's exactly what they do. It's like, you know, you want to come for dinner. You know, that's the, hi, which name you want to come for dinner? Because then you can sit for four hours and get to know each other. That They know that. So they would just be astounded if you said that. It would be the greatest thing to say. In Palo Alto, I went to a Walmart, and I saw a lady with a veil on. And I went up to her. I said, do you speak Arabic in Arabic? And she said, yes, I do. Let me give you a hug. <laughs> She'd never met me in her life. And just because I was speaking Arabic, she let me give you a hug. <laughs> so just so you know, like, don't hesitate they don't have that hesitation that we have as Americans they're a warm culture yeah so go for it yeah <laughs>